Well, let's get back to work, shall we, on evangelism here. You remember the book of Revelation, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, as we dealt with the other night, and the central drama of the, uh, of the history of the universe, of the world, but is the coming of the Lamb in victory to take that scroll, the gathering together of the 144,000 from all the tribes and the, the innumerable people who all come in the great, great song of praise to he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That great central drama of heaven, the cross of Jesus. And it's that kind of backdrop that we need to have in our, our, minds, our mind to understand evangelism, to see the importance, the place, the significance of what is happening. And we can get a, a view of what reality is about, about that other king, Jesus, not Caesar, but Jesus, who is really in control of the world, and his control, his, his, control, his victory, his triumph has taken place in the work of the cross, and his gathering together of his people now for that final time when the destruction of the world and the judgment takes place and when we all sing with one voice, one heart and one mind to the praise of our, our God. The turning point in a game is quite often insignificant until after the game. You know, the, the particular catch that's held or the particular catch if you're an Australian that's dropped that really allowed that man on for his second century and before lunch and <laughs> that Indian opening batsman is just a whirlwind isn't he astonishing however it has to do with the bowling as well but it's the, the catch which at the time you say oh there's another one 12th this morning but it really does matter I was watching a golf tournament the other day that's a depressing activity. My golf is depressing to start with, but watching the professionals is more depressing still. And they're coming up to the final. I can't remember which one it was, but it was in the Australian season just very recently. And they're coming up to the final uh, couple of holes and the two leading men are, are neck and neck and, and if he sinks this putt, he, he, he draws and they'll have to go on for a playoff. And if he misses the putt, he loses. So at that moment, it really look, here is the putt upon which it all hails. Huh? He sank it went in and found out that he'd uh, actually stepped out of bounds back on the 14th. Had a penalty stroke he didn't know about and he really lost it back then. He was a bit put out. <laughs> but it was interesting, see, because that event was so insignificant that the cameras didn't film it. We spent minutes and minutes on that final putt, which we all thought was the big one. This is the event that matters, but it didn't matter. He'd already lost. Funny that, isn't it? It's not so afterwards that you can know what is the moment that really mattered. Now, what is the moment that really matters? The cross of Jesus is the moment that really matters in the universe. How do you know that? Because the book of Revelation shows you. It shows you what is and must take place. And it's all about the lamb who was slain. He is the one upon whom the whole of eternity hinges. That act is the one upon which the whole of eternity hinges. Not just history, but eternity. It's not just A, B, C and A, D. It's, it's the universe. It's, it's heaven and hell hinge upon that one great moment, that one great act, that one great person, of course. Australia, the uh, classless society, 
is one of the most sophisticated in its class distinctions. We play such enormously subtle games because we're not allowed to say that anybody comes from any other class than the middle class. So we're all middle class. Now that we're all middle class, we've got to find out some other way of finding out how and why it is that I'm better than you. Well, you have to find it out, I know, of course. But <laughs> so we run in our opening introductions the, the kind of little classiometer that over each other as to work out where we are in the, the pecking order. Right? And I mean, as soon as we see each other, we work out whether we're taller or shorter, because taller people are obviously more important than shorter people. That's why we elect them to be our politicians. <laughs> Little wonder we have the politicians we have if the basis of choice is being taller, but they are, on, on average, taller than the community. Isn't that interesting, that we actually elect tall people to govern the countryside? Really strange, isn't it? In the Amer American presidential race, I understand that only twice in the history of the race has the shorter man won. So it's an disease we've got from somewhere else. Anyway, we weigh up the people, right? We, we check them out by their physical beauty, don't we? Because that's very important, how they look, how all the body language comes out as to the way they hold themselves. And we say, you know, he's obviously a wimpy, couldn't hold the football if, he, if it was passed to him. And so immediately, you, he's down, right? Unless you move in wimp circles, you see? And then, <laughs> and we check out whether or not he, whether or not he, he, he eats quiche, you know? I mean, that's, that's another test, isn't it? And, I met a man the other day who eats quiche, and he's a real man, because he eats quiche in front of truck drivers. <laughs> there's, there's the real test. And so we, we've got that kind of figure as to, as to where he fits into that kind of spectrum. And then we, we, we test out the next thing. We talk to them. Now, that gives away a bit, you know. We, we're not like the, uh, like the Poms, who can immediately establish where they are in the pecking order by the accent, because we don't have an accent. I mean, that's, that's clear, is it? So, I mean, I, I, unless he really is excessively ochre, you won't pick anything particularly odd about the way he speaks, will you? So that won't give away much. So you've got to, you've got to actually get some content out of him and say, well, you know, well, what do you do? Ah, what you do immediately tells where you are up or down. One of my friends who lectures at the New South Wales University, when people ask him what he does, he comes from a very snooty suburb, which I won't mention because there might be other people from St Ives here. And, <laughs> and as, soon as, uh, as soon as they say to him, what do you do? He always says he's a plumber. He says, very interesting. It, it really goes up like the proverbial lead balloon. They, they say, oh, thank you very much, and walk away from him. It's fascinating because we can... Your pecking order is established clearly by that. Now, of course, we do that within the university, don't you? you know, are you in a university or are you in a college or are you in tech college or don't you... Do you work? <laughs> Weird phenomenon. <laughs> I understand some geriatrics do that. Well, so we've got that kind of pecking order. And then within the, within the college or whatever, we have a pecking order of the faculties, don't we? Right? And so there is, you're in this or in this or in that or... You know, you're, you're doing geography. I mean, there's... <laughs> and so it's all clear, and we all know which it is, don't we? You know the order of the, of the faculties as to whether you're to be impressed or not. You can be crude. I met some crude students in a college recently. They didn't bother asking each other so much which faculty they were in. They asked, what marks did you get in the HSC? 
So they knew exactly who were the bright ones and who were the not so and who was just got in and who were in the arts faculty. <laughs> now, that's an engineer. About the only word you can get from them. It's easy for them to spell. And they still get it wrong. Now, that capacity we have, you see, is all about evaluating myself in terms of you. Trying to find out whether I'm better than you or worse than you so as I can have my own self-identity, especially in a particular group and context. And it's a very common, normal way in which people operate in society. You see it all the time, don't you? In fact, part of the reason you were laughing is because you kept seeing yourselves, didn't you? You know the games you've played. We, we, we do it. We all do it. It's very important for me to know who I am in relationship with the people I'm around about. Am I brighter, better, more handsome, younger, older? Where am I? Who am I? And of course it's a terrible tyranny we play upon each other because the only way I can be established as worthwhile is if I am better, bigger, brighter, cleverer, smarter or something or other. And I'll even go to extremes and say, well, I'm the best tiddlywinks player in this group in order to establish that I'm worthwhile because I can do this or that or I have this or that accomplishment or, or whatever it may be. The end consequence, of course, of that is, is divisiveness all the time because you can never love the people that you're trying to beat. The whole process is me building up my little empire, my little, my little conquest. And when it comes into the church... And then, of course, divisions flow very freely from it, don't they, as we all edge for our little area of muscle. And in our Christian union, it's the same kind of thing. And election times are really great danger to us in that regard, isn't it? That we can degenerate ourselves into pushing for power struggles in the name of Jesus Christ. And divisiveness is one of the great problems for Christian congregations and Christian unions and so on. But it also affects our evangelism, markedly, in our methods of evangelism and in our non-evangelism. Have you ever been afraid to evangelise? I won't ask you to put your hands up if you've ever... I'd almost like to ask if there's anyone here who's not been afraid. I really would like to meet the person because there's something wrong with them. Basically, it's a fearful operation we're engaged in. And it's that fearfulness that I want us to deal with this morning because that's one of the biggest inhibitors, isn't it? I'm actually scared stiff of doing it. been doing it for most of my life and I'm still scared stiff every time the possibility comes up again. And why is it? Well, it's, there's lots of reasons, good and bad for it, but it's there and I want us to deal with it. The Apostle had it. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so you might as well start summing up there. The Apostle had it. In fact, he says in chapter 2, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Sorry, I've got to go back there. When I came, verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. And he asks the brothers in Ephesians to pray for us that we may have boldness. You never pray for something that you've got, do you? You pray for what you haven't got. You don't ask people to pray for things that you've already got. You ask people to pray for things that you haven't got. He wanted them to pray for boldness for a very good reason. He was scared stiff. 
Isn't it nice to know that the mighty Apostle Paul was just like you and I, fearful? And fearful and trembling in evangelism. So first of all, don't get guilty about being fearful. You're in good company. Mine and the Apostle Paul. The latter makes it good company. We're all fearful, don't get, and don't say, well, I can't do it because I am fearful. Because although Paul is fearful, he was still able to do it. Nothing wrong with being fearful. There's something wrong in allowing that to prevent you from doing the task. To be ruled by it and dominated by it may be, in fact, very wrong. But don't be guilty about being fearful or surprised that you're fearful or think that you're the only person who's ever been nervous, ever been scared. Well, we're all that way. But some of the fear we can alleviate if we understand our gospel message clearly. Because some of the fearfulness comes out of being respecters of people. Some of our fear comes out of our wrong way of understanding ourselves as being significant and important people because of what we can do and who we are. Some of our fear comes out of our misunderstanding of the way in which God works in the world. All of which issues come out of this 1 Corinthians passage. In one sense, Paul is not speaking about evangelism and so I'm doing a bit of a fudge by speaking on evangelism from this passage. What he's really addressing are divisions within the church. That's the real point at issue that he's, arrived, that he's attacking. And I'm not going to really be dealing with that particular issue. But the way in which he deals with the divisions in the church is by taking them back to the gospel message itself. Paul's always a great one with that. When you've got a problem, let's get back to the first principles of the theology of the truth of the word of God, the first principles of the gospel on this occasion, and work out from the gospel what is the appropriate remedy and understanding of the situation that we're in. And the divisions that were in the church are totally inconsistent with the gospel and with the, message, the method of evangelism and the whole idea of evangelism with which I came to you. And so while the primary thrust of this passage is really about the divisions of the church. That's what he's arguing about. He does so from the gospel and evangelism. And so it's fair enough then to take the secondary theme that is in this passage, namely the gospel and evangelism. Let me read from verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brother, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else because Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence and the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is righteousness Sorry, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now this is the passage we'll deal with. We'll actually be uh, dipping back into it again tomorrow because we'll be going on into uh, the second half of chapter 2 tomorrow, some of which comes from the section I've read. What is taking place here? God is at work. Firstly, there are three ways in which I'm going to speak of him being at work. Firstly, in not the way the world thinks. Very important, there's a large negative section in this passage that we've read for us. A negative theme. The world has a way of working, but it's quite different to God's way. Purposefully, intentionally, God has made his way of working different to the world's way. We are the children of the world and unconsciously have adopted its values and its ideas and therefore unconsciously have adopted its values and ideas about the way in which things get done or should get done. What is important and unimportant, valuable and, and invaluable, you may say, in evangelism, we think will be what the world does. But that is not so. The gospel... The ministry of Paul, the gospel is foolishness to the world. Stupid what we're going to be engaged in. It's a silly thing. It will be despised, ridiculed and laughed at because it's not what the world looks for. The world looks for wisdom, looks for demonstrations of power. And the wisdom the world looks for will be cloaked in the persuasive words, will be cloaked in the eloquent words, will be cloaked in the ideas and thoughts that are profound and deep and move the mind to think. The world wants demonstrations of power, miracles, miraculous signs, things that will demonstrate before the very eyes that something enormously powerful is taking place. Now that's still the case today, isn't it? Still we see people who will run after the, the latest fad in intellectual guruism. Still we think, and you and I think, 
that we have to have all the answers to all the questions of the world before we could ever preach the gospel to anybody. Because what would happen if somebody asked me a question I couldn't answer? It would be just another day, I tell you. But there's a sense of feeling, unless I know everything, then I couldn't possibly speak on anything. You'll notice it in undergraduate essays, which some of you still write. There's more footnotes than there's text. Incredible insecurity. We've got to answer everything. We've got to know everything. We've got to have the last word on everything before... And if I could just do some miracles, ah, the crowds would flock. I've worked out all kinds of good miracles I've thought up that would increase the people who come to Bible study at the University of New South Wales. If I could say to that overhead projector, rise up, <laughs> hang in the air, turn yourself on, do a somersault, come back down, there'd be twice as many people in Bible study the next week. Wouldn't they? We wouldn't have to put up any posters. We wouldn't have to advertise in the, in the newspaper. There'd be twice as many. And if I did it again, there'd be twice as many the week after, wouldn't there? Oh, they may be saying, how does he do it? It's all done with mirrors. Where's the strings attached? All that kind of thing. But they'd be there. Because here is something extraordinary. Here is something fantastic. And so the world looks for wisdom, power. It's not God's ways. It's not God's ways. The world looks for social distinctions. You see them down there in the end of the chapter, verse 26 following. People who are influential. People who are of noble birth. That's, that's what we think will be important. You ever notice that? How Christians are concerned to pray for people in important positions to get converted? How they put them forward to give testimonies? Those, those television evangelists are very good at it. You, know, that, you never get a testimony from Mr Joe Average with whom Mr Joe Average sitting in the audience can identify. You always get a testimony from somebody who was an Olympic star, a, a movie star who's, who's glamorous and who's had 25 divorces and so knows more than any of us about it and that kind of incredible thing, you see. Somebody who... It's got to be extraordinary to grasp the imagination. It's a strange thing, isn't it? But that's not what God has done. He hasn't chosen out the leaders, the rulers, the important people, the great ones, the sporting heroes. Oh, the world argues that way. And Christians have fallen into those worldly arguments from time to time, haven't they? Sorry, we. We get the school captain out the front to give testimony. Because if he's a Christian, that's not what God does. Human standards are not God's standards. It's not being influential. Oh, we think, look, I really need to be a graduate because as a graduate I can become a leader in the community. And if I'm a leader in the community, I can be a person who, who, who will have great influence and wouldn't it be important to have Christians in positions of influence in the world? And the answer is no. If God wants people with influence in the world, he'll convert them, but by and large he doesn't. Because that's not his way. 
Think about it for a moment. Who is the most powerful person that you've ever met? I think there's a very powerful person in our church back at home. Really incredibly powerful. Somewhere between the ages of 50 and 90, it's a little bit hard to work out, really. But I tell you, you get on her prayer list, you never get off it. Unless you die. She takes you before the throne of the Almighty daily and pleads your course from the source of real power. Bob Hawke's got nothing on her. He can build a ditch and put down a road and call it a bicentennial <laughs> authority activity. He can do that. But if she prays against him, he mightn't even be able to do that. But you walk past her in the street and you'll say, oh yeah, well there she is. She's the one who's got the ear of God. That's who she is. Where's real power lie? Who are the powerful people in the world? You see, it's not the way the world views it. Unfortunately, Christians still view it the way the world views it. We think if we can just get the elite converted, the, the important, we think if we can get ourselves into the position of the elite, we'll be able to do all that kind of good. But that's not the way, says Paul. Not many of you are like that. See, God's ways are not the way the world thinks. In fact, they think that it's foolishness. It's weakness going around and preaching. Why don't you go and do something honest? Why don't you go and do something worthwhile? Why don't you go and get some dirt on your hands? Why don't you go and really help people where it matters? Well, they're the arguments of the world. Some friends of mine have left the medical profession in order to be evangelists. Ah, it's not even the, 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 the non-Christians who think they're foolish. It's particularly galling that so many Christians think they're foolish. Why give up medicine? You can be such a help to humanity. You can, be so, you can care for people. Look, if you really are so concerned about it, why don't you go and do medicine in the third world because they need it so desperately there? I mean, there's a whole hundred good rationalisations why medicine is the ant's pants and why evangelism is a stupid alternative to something so profoundly helpful for mankind. Now, don't get me wrong. When I'm sick, I like to have a good doctor who can soothe my hypochondria. I love to have any pain relief. If it wasn't for the fact I hate needles, there'd be every chance I'd go for drugs. I mean, I just like to be made comfortable. I can understand that there's good to have high medical... Not, not knocking that as such. It's got to do with the relative value system. For the world's way of seeing how you help mankind is not God's way, necessarily. can be quite different, can't they? But notice who the world are. They are those who are perishing. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness. To whom? To those who are perishing. That's to whom it's foolishness. Now why is he arguing this way? Well, part of it's got to do with the church divisions. Because he wants to point out that there's nothing that you can boast of except the Lord. 
You want to say, you can't go around saying, well, I'm an important person in this church. Because there is no such thing as the important person in this church, is there? For who are you? You are one of the ones that God has chosen. One of the nothings of this world. One of the unimportant. One of the things that you could make a trivial pursuit question out of. You are the nobodies. Because they are the ones who in Christ have become the kings and the rulers. But you become the king and the ruler in Christ. He is what is important, not you and your accomplishments and your achievements. And so any kind of boasting, any vaunting of yourself, any holding up yourself as significant is a total misunderstanding of the gospel. If you understand the gospel rightly, then you won't be playing those kinds of party games, of divisions within the congregation. That is what he's wanting to say. But you'll see what he is saying then about God's way of working in the world, which is very important to our consideration of evangelism. And what is God's way? Surprise, surprise, oh revelation experts, the cross. That is God's way. The cross and the cross preached is the way. The foolishness of words as much as the foolishness of the message of those words, namely the cross of Jesus. The cross, which is such a stumbling block to the Jews and such a folly to the Gentiles. The message about a man who was crucified. The message about somebody who came to take away the sins of the world. What a stupidity, what a simple message, what a nonsense these Christians go on with. We represent all kinds of tertiary education, all kinds of disciplines and fields. But I would be very surprised, be very happy to hear it, but I would be very surprised if anybody in this place other than those doing theology will have heard in their lecture classes any references to sin. Sin does not exist in the tertiary world as an idea. It does exist in practice, I can assure you, as an idea. We have faculties called the humanities that analyse humanity without reference to sin. Little wonder that they never have any answers. If you've left out the, one of the most fundamental and clearly observable facts of human nature out of the agenda of discussion, what chance have you got to coming up with the truth? Well, they don't want the truth in the end because that ruins your next PhD thesis. If someone's found it already, you're doomed, aren't you? The whole exercise, you see, leaves aside sin. Now, if you leave aside sin, then what Jesus does in coming to take away the sin of the world is a pretty stupid activity, isn't it? He came away to take nothing. Why didn't he come and do something that was important? Why didn't he come and help people in their health? Why didn't he come and help people with their, with their social inequalities? Why didn't he come and help people with... There's a hundred things he could have come and done that would have been worthwhile in the world's terms because the world's terms has left out sin. You know why they've left out sin, don't you? Because you can't have sin without God. I mean, sin is rebellion against God. Now, we don't want to have God because he might call upon me to act responsibly in a whole range of other nasties. So we dispense with God and we've dispensed with sin all in the same time, which means we've dispensed also with Christ and what he's come to do. That's why he never features in your lecture class much. Because the whole thing is, is irrelevant, you see. It's pushed out to one side, what Jesus has done. 
Mind you, it is a problem that we keep fighting with each other and there are famines and people treat each other so badly and we still have to have prisons, but we try and put it into a different categories. The kind of economic deprivations they've had in their background or, or the fact their mothers weaned them too fast or a hundred other theories that may help out explain why it is. We have all kinds of other analyses of it, but we cannot allow the analysis which says that mankind has rebelled against its maker. And if we haven't got that analysis in there, there's no way that we'll make any sense or any evaluation of the lamb that was slain, of the cross of Jesus. And so it's always foolishness. Stupid go prattling on about a man who died in the first century. There have been hundreds of martyrs. Why don't you talk about Che Guevara? Why don't you talk about somebody who died for a great cause today? Why do you go on about that old fella? I mean, what's the point? They've lost the point. But that's what Paul preached. And it was foolishness in his day as much as ours. Maybe classified foolishness in slightly different reasons, etc. But it's still foolishness. It was always foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved by it, it's God's way of salvation. For through it God calls us, through it God chooses us. Not because we were anything other than sinners. I contribute nothing to my salvation except my sinfulness. And I've done more than my fair share of that. That's the only contribution I make. God didn't choose me because I've got a big mouth, a fast lip, a good, a good offspin, a straight bat, a magnificent golf slice. He doesn't choose me for any of those kinds of things. There's nothing in me that can bring credit. The lowly of the worlds, the unimportant, the things that are not, the things that are despised even. Nothing in me. Isn't that an incredible thing? And he does it through the gospel, which is a gospel about forgiveness and pardon. And why is it about forgiveness and pardon? Because it's about the Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, for your failures, for your weakness. And so God's way is saving people. That's what it's about. For those who are being saved, this cross of Jesus and this message of the cross of Jesus is in fact God's power at work in the world today. Is in fact God's wisdom. We'll go more into the wisdom next time when we look at, at how God in his wisdom chose that man wouldn't know God through, his, through man's wisdom. That little verse that comes there in verse 21 which anticipates the argument of chapter 2 that God doesn't choose people on the basis that they're clever enough to work him out. Now ponder it a minute, friends. This is going to affect our evangelism, isn't it? God doesn't choose people who are clever enough to choose him. You say, well, I never believed that. But I suggest that many times the way we evangelise, we do think that. We think that we have to make the message very clever. We have to persuade people intellectually. We have to show demonstrations of, of intellectual proof. We have to go into the depths of epistemology to, to really demonstrate what you can know and can't know and what knowledge is and so we'll really get to know what God's all about. And, and, and it's only the clever that will ever get converted, the clever and the good and the moral and the important. Now that's the exact reverse of what the gospel's about, isn't it? It's about the hopeless and the lost the degenerate and the no good. 
the despised and the nothing, being brought out of the pit into the very family of God. God's method is not by the appeal of wisdom like that. It's not that, but rather it's the message of the cross. So that we will have nothing to have our faith in but the Lord himself. Nothing to boast of but the Lord. And so when we meet people and we say, what do you do? We actually want to put that into, well, I do this important thing and I do that important thing. And I suppose the real answer is, I, what I do is I thank God. That's what I do. What do you do? I think it's better than answering, I'm a plumber. But it'll have the same kind of lead balloon effect. <laughs> I say, oh, no, I mean, as a profession, as a profession, oh, that's unimportant. Oh, it's not unimportant. It's very important. I spent three years praying as to whether I'd be a civil engineer or an electrical engineer. And very important, which you are. Can't be, can it? Totally unimportant, which you are. Utterly and completely unimportant, but whether you're saved or not is very important. And what do you boast of? It's the Lord. That's what's important in your life, isn't it? Do we really believe that's what's important? Is that what makes me important? Is that what makes me worthwhile? Is that what makes me a person that is of any significance? That the Lord should die for me? That I've been called into his family? It's a whole way of evaluating yourself that when you grasp hold of, of course, will break down divisions, won't they? So you were born in Melbourne. Very hard not to, at this point, lose my point in the humour. So you were born in Melbourne. What difference? Have you been reborn by the Spirit? You're no better than me because you were born in Melbourne. And it's a moment of terrible honesty. No worse either. It's an irrelevance, isn't it? It doesn't matter. So you're shorter, so you're taller, so you're fatter, so you're thinner, so you're smarter, so that you're dumber. It doesn't matter, but it matters in the world, doesn't it? And it can easily matter within congregations and within the Christian Union, can't it? The pecking order of the world infiltrates the Christian Union sometimes. But when you come back to the gospel message of what it's about, those things are an irrelevance complete another irrelevance the only contribution we've made sin and we've all done that equally can't be any more sinful than sinful and that's what we are we're just the we're just the beggars that god has picked up and given the great feast of life there's no pride that is available to you except to boast in the lord and his wonder and how marvelous he is and so we know the power of salvation and we know the wisdom of god because I of myself could not do it. I was hopeless and I was lost. You can try it out in little exercises. Have you ever, what, I don't know what your problem is. We'll take telling lies because James tells me that none of you can control your tongues. Telling lies or, or gossiping about people. Have you ever been able to stop it? You're going to say, okay, I'm never going to tell an untruth again. Now cut your tongue out, that's the easiest way. Even in your body language and what you write, you'll still tell lies, won't you? You ever come to the fact of hopelessness of your own moral state? Have you ever really faced up to the judgment that you are under with God and seen how right it is 
that you should be cast away. And that all the attempts of self-improvement are of no value. And the more you find out about God's word, the more you know your own deep, pitted sinfulness. I keep on deluding myself into thinking that I'm actually okay. And then I turn the corner of life and I do things that reveal that deep down inside me is a, is a disease that is just unfathomably big. Keep on surprising myself about the own filth of my own mind and life and ways. And therefore to know that I'm saved is to know the power of God. And how am I saved? By Jesus dying on my behalf. Taking my sin upon himself. Oh, the power of God is magnificent. Idi Amin was a monstrous president in Uganda. We really, in the 20th century, have seen incredible monstrosities in parliaments and powers, haven't we? And Idi Amin really was one who was monstrous. Now that lovely Bishop Festo there was praying for his conversion. He thought, well, what chances a man like that have of getting converted? You know why you think that? Because the devil has persuaded you that somehow you're better than Idi Amin. You're no better than he is. He's just had more opportunity for sin than you have, that's all. Basic reason I don't sin more is lack of opportunity. It's the basic reason. I'm not put into those positions, those situations, thankfully for you as well as me, when I can give full reign to my own wickedness. God doesn't choose good people to be Christians. Oh, you say, oh, I knew that. Well, why, do you, why are you surprised that you should look for Idi Amin? Is it harder for God to convert Idi Amin? than you? Of course not. It's exactly the same, isn't it? Precisely the same. And so there can be no distinctions, but also that means something about our evangelism, doesn't it? Because I keep on coming up against people and I think, well, there's no hope for them. Oh, what a stupid idea. How can there be no hope for them? I'm the hopeless one and there's hope for me. How can there be no hope for him? So he's gone so far down the track he couldn't possibly be converted. Why couldn't he be converted down the track there? Ah, the beauty of Paul in 1 Timothy. The chief of sinners. An example, a walking sermon illustration of God's graciousness. The man who set out to murder the disciples of the Lord who had died to save him. God converted him. There's chance for anybody, isn't there? See the gospel message? And you see how I stand back from you? I think, oh, I couldn't. you couldn't speak the gospel to them. That man's so clever. It's not just the degenerate, it's so clever. I mean, what about the vice-chancellor in your university? He's got so many degrees written after his name that he has got more written after his name than you've got in your name. I mean, when he dies and they cremate him, they're going to have to get two little boxes just to have a plaque big enough to have it all on. No way he could possibly, possibly ever get converted now because, not from me anyway, because I wouldn't know what to say to a man like that. How could I ever, what, what possibly could I do? There's a lovely story of Bilney's preaching the gospel to the great Bishop Latimer. 
which you need to read up sometime. Find out how Latimer was converted. It's a lovely story which gives great heart to little university people. Great story, because the great big ones get converted on exactly the same message as the little ones get converted on. The cross. Because what is God's wisdom in this world? It's there for you at the end of the chapter, verse 30, isn't it? Our righteousness, holiness and redemption. It's not calculus. It's not nuclear physics. It's something much more profound than that. It's righteousness, holiness, redemption. They're the great ideas. They're God's great secret plan for the universe, for us in the universe. We know what the world is about. Oh, I don't know, I don't know the first thing about calculus. Well, I do. I know I can't do it. Yeah, I know a couple of other things too. Isaac Newton and, and, and had a fight with Leibniz. I know a couple of things, but basically I don't know about calculus. But I know something more important. I know what the universe is about. That's very clever, isn't it? Because there are all kinds of people who are real whiz-bangs on the calculus, but they haven't got the foggiest clue what the world's about. Now, how do I know what the world's about? Because I'm the super clever, intelligent person? <laughs> no, no, of course not. Because I know the cross of Jesus. When you understand the cross of Jesus, you understand what the whole world and the universe is about, what history is about, what God is about, what man is about, what you are about. As you see, in the cross, in that message, the power of God is revealed, picking people out of hell and putting them in heaven. It's pretty powerful. It's a big trip, that. The power of God is revealed. And the wisdom of God is revealed. But only to those who are being saved by it. They're the only ones who get the message. God is at work, not as the way the world thinks, but in his way and through the apostle. For understanding the message properly, you'll see there the apostle's evangelism. He's a preacher, because that's what you do with the message of the cross. You preach it. The stupidity of words, 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 of which Peter spoke to us the other night. But they're the word of God, of course. Not with wisdom, not with cleverness of speech, not with great signs and miracles, but with the real power of the Spirit of God regenerating people through that word of the cross of Jesus Christ, with the real wisdom that is revealed in the word of God, in fear, in trembling, with much alarm and anxiety about it, with the adrenaline pumping and all the rest, the clammy hands and the dryness at the back of the throat. You get all the symptoms of the fear, but you press on because you know this is the way in which God is at work. And although it might seem pretty dumb and stupid and some are going to laugh out loud at me and some are going to snigger behind their backs, it doesn't matter because I know this is the truth. We are great respecters of persons. I remember in third year uni, we did an honours class in geography where we had to all write essays and then read them out loud in front of each other. Depressing. Make sure you are the first person to read yours. Because after you've heard the other, you want to go on suicide. They sound so magnificent. Boy, how do they know all this? No wonder I didn't find those books in the library. They had them. I mean, really, it was depression in extreme. As I sit there and listen to these people who are so clever, I think, oh, I'm not even in the same class. 
I wonder why I'm here. Maybe I'll resign. I hope they don't ask me to read it out loud. Maybe I could sneak it into the lecture later and just fail in privacy. <laughs> you know that feeling? We think they're so clever because of their eloquence, because they've read the right books and can put it together and quote it and all the rest of it. And that affects the whole way in which we evangelise in fear of these super clever people. But that's because we think we've got to be as clever as they, and we don't have to be clever at all. That we th because we think that God converts people through being intelligent, and that's not how he converts people at all. That's because we don't really believe that the cross is the centre of the universe. That's our problem. We've got to tell them the old story and what it means for Jesus to die on the cross. And God will use that message to bring people to himself. Now let me just put one qualifier on this because I know I like to speak in the extremes. Everyone will qualify. That doesn't mean we have to say it in a stupid fashion. Right? Nothing wrong with using your minds. It's a fairly important activity in preaching. Right? But we don't have to use all the tricks of the advertising industry or the university lecturing. We just have to say the message. And we have to say it recognising that a lot of them are going to laugh at it. But those who are going to be saved will be saved by it. And so we press on. Now therefore, this passage helps us in our Christian life to think back about ourselves properly so that we won't then move into divisiveness in our congregational life. But it tells us about evangelism, where to have our confidence, doesn't it? Don't look for your confidence in having done two ways to live. It'll let you down. Don't look for your confidence in having read every book on apologetics that's available. They'll let you down. The foolishness of man is such that they will laugh at the cleverest of things. Of course they will. I've told people about Jesus dying on the cross for them and they've roared laughing. The foolishness of man will laugh at the cleverest of things. So don't put your hope and faith and confidence in cleverness. That's not going to work. Just put it in the message of the cross in fulfilling God's plans and purposes. So that is what is really crucial. That is the centre. That is the crux, all of which, of course, are ways of talking about the cross. There is a marvellous book with the lousiest cover ever designed by IVP called Student Witness and Christian Truth by Robert M. Horne. I've got a few copies up there and we're sending down for some more. It's a marvellous book because it tells you on what basis Christians can and can't work with other people in the work of evangelism. It's the only book I know on the subject, really, and it really sets the case out, I think, beautifully. And in the back of it, it has a very important chapter that every person involved in AFES should read this story. It's in several books, but it's a good chapter summary of it in this book. And it's the great founding of, of Kick You and IVF. That great moment of split back in, in the beginning of this century. When in Cambridge, the SCM, the Student Christian Movement, and the Kick You came to the parting of the ways. It's a very interesting, uh, d a very interesting uh, piece of history to, that helps you understand the whole nature of evangelicalism. 
After the war was over, in 1919, the SCM again approached the Cambridge Christian Union. One report goes like this. Many and urgent representations were made that the Christian Union should link up and become part of a kind of devotional branch of the student Christian movement. To settle the matter, the meeting of the delegates from the two committees met in Trinity College. Norman Grubb and D.T. Dick represented the Christian Union. Shouldn't laugh too much. Norman Grubb was a great one who was a great blessing in this country. After an hour's conversation, well, he did have a funny name, didn't he? <laughs> after, after an hour's conversation, which got us nowhere, reported Grubb, one direct and vital question was put. Here we go. Hang on to your minds now, concentrate. We're coming to this very important point here. Does the SCM consider the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the central point of their message? Does the SCM consider the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the central point of their message? And the answer was given, no, not as central, although it is given a place in our teaching. So they don't deny the atoning work of Jesus Christ. They don't deny the crucifixion of Jesus. They don't deny the idea of Christ dying for the sins of the world. They acknowledge that's true. They just say, not central. That answer settled the matter. For we explained to them at once that the atoning blood was so much the heart of our message that we could never join with a movement that gave it a lesser place. It is on that basis that the IVF was founded. But it's the exact basis that Paul preached, isn't it? We decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Very simple. Very, very, very simple the message that we have, to, we have to bring to the world. If you know that Jesus died for your sins, you know the gospel well enough to preach it. Don't need any more classes, but make sure you go to this afternoon's workshop. But it's not the workshop, and it's not the tract, and it's not the techniques, and it's not the answers. It's Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. And a thousand things will distract us from us. We keep being led by the evil one off to other issues, good issues. They're the best ones to lead Christians astray on, aren't they? If they're bad issues, Christians won't do it at all. But good issues of humanity and justice and, and all kinds of things that are right and proper in themselves but are not the gospel and will never save anybody. For they are not the power of God in the world. They are not the wisdom of God for the world. For the centre of it all is the Lamb who was slain. The gathering together of all those who have washed their robes in his blood. Let's pray.